Hello, welcome to Blocked and Reported. I am Jesse Single. I'm alone. I'm without my co-host Katie Herzog. I miss her. She'll be back soon. I'm here to present you an interview I did with Ben Burgess. Ben's a really smart guy. I will let him introduce himself momentarily, and we talked about a lot of stuff. Everything from the importance of and limitations of debate, to Jordan Peterson, to the fight over no platforming, to the arguably self-defeating maximalist way lefties portray important issues. At the end, we also got into the missing class element from a lot of the discussion of police reform, and we talked about some other stuff as well. Check the show notes for a guide that lays out the major subjects we discussed and where in the episode you can find them. This conversation is almost an hour and a half long. I'm also going to do a shorter cut for the free version, so we'll make it clear when that pops up in the an upcoming free episode that you can sort of skip that. We'll put it at the end of the episode. Definitely let us know how you like this sort of long-form format with, with either me or Katie interviewing someone alone. Um, we know we want to make interviews a fairly frequent part of the podcast, but exactly how to do it is still up in the air, and some feedback from you, our trusty patrons, would be much appreciated. Thank you guys so much. I hope you're surviving the apocalypse okay, uh, and I also hope you enjoy my conversation with Ben Burgess. Hello, Ben Burgess. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. You are uh, holding, hanging in there during our present apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, considering the the plague and depression and and civil unrest and and, and everything else, I'm I'm surprisingly fine. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm I'm really um yeah thankful you came on. Could you, as I told you before we started recording, I'm going to be lazy and just have you sort of introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, so I am a columnist for Jacobin. Uh, I co-host a podcast called The Dead Pundit Society uh, with Adam Proctor. I do um, a regular segment on the Michael Brooks show called uh, The Debunk. And uh, related to that last point, I wrote a book called uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Great. And you're a, a philosopher by training and profession, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a uh, full-time lecturer in philosophy at uh, Georgia State University Perimeter College here in Atlanta. I mean, the easiest way to sum up your book, which I, I loved and I'll would recommend to anyone, we'll include a link to it, is as it says on the jacket copy, the serious left must learn how to argue and persuade. So, could you just talk a bit about sort of the process that led you to think that was a, an important enough argument to put in a book form? Yeah. Um, so I had been, um, you know, before I wrote this, uh, I'd been writing a academic monograph that, uh, is still hasn't come out yet, which is entirely my fault. You know, the process takes a long time, but, um, but, you know, because that book, which I'm sure, you know, maybe 12 people in the world will read, uh, but, you know, because it had to do with logic, uh, Doug Lane, who's a friend of mine from a long time ago and also is the editor of Zero Books, uh, which is the publisher of Give Them an Argument, uh, sort of asked if I'd be interested in writing something for them about uh, logic and left politics. And, and it took me a little while to wrap my head around what that would be. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there actually is – a need for uh, for that kind of intervention. So, uh, for example, uh, there there is a certain tendency that I think some people, you know, on on the left, right? Like, so I'm I'm a, you know, just to um, 
you know, just to kind of establish where I'm coming from, right? I, I'm, I've, I've been a member of, of DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America for years. I, I, you know, I, I listen, uh, you know, listen to Chapo to Crap House. I have a beard and glasses. You've probably, you know, seen a hundred people who are indistinguishable <laughs> from me. Uh, right. But, um, but a lot of people who share those political sensibilities with me, I think uh, there's a kind of worrying cultural trend uh, towards rolling their eyes when they hear a certain kind of logic talk or especially references to, to logical fallacies and, and you know, why you should avoid them, uh, which I think has to do with the fact that they're so used to hearing that stuff from, um, from people they, they rightly dislike. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so the, the classical example of that is um, there's this, cause I think some of, we have our listenership ranges from pretty online to not surprisingly unonline. And, and the, prototypical example of this is someone will come at you and say, I think some races are smarter than others. And you'll say, well, screw you, get out of here. And they'll say, well, why won't you debate me? Don't you care about facts and logic? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And of course, um, that's not just, um, you know, that's not just random internet trolls either. You've also kind of just described Sam Harris's intervention in the uh, debate about Ezra Klein and uh, Charles Murray's race science um, that like when, when, when Sam and Ezra had that conversation uh, 95% of it was Ezra tried to push back on the, uh, the substance of the argument, you know, arguments and like why he thinks that the science is wrong and, and, and Sam decrying how we can't have these conversations. Um, Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, so, so that's, that's very annoying. Um, and, and there are people who think that they have a unlimited right to your, your time and energy that, uh, that you, that everybody has to be constantly ready to drop everything to debate. With, in, the, in the supermarket, for example. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, somebody walks up to you and, and challenges a view that you have, like you just have to drop your groceries on the ground and stand there having a, a Socratic dialogue with them for the next hour. Brief digression, but I, the one time someone recognized me in public ever, I think it was because he was a, a Breitbart reader and they had gone after me a couple of times. I'm waiting in line visiting my parents for tacos during Ooh. halftime of a Celtics game. This guy recognized me and wants to debate Obama's Iran policy while I'm waiting <laughs> for my tacos. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's obviously not reasonable. And um, I all, and also in many cases, um, People who are who are in this category, um, you know, the the folks who I perhaps uncharitably describe in the book as uh, basement dwelling libertarian uh, internet trolls and their offline equivalents, uh, oftentimes don't even really want to engage in some process of like careful reasoning about why you think what you think and whether you know whether some some other perspective would make more sense. Uh, what they really want to do is just have some sort of process of feeling like they've rhetorically defeated you. Right. Uh, and, and I totally get why people are, 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 have a very short fuse with stuff like that, uh, and have learned to dismiss the vocabulary that they so often, uh, hear from those people. But the problem is the last thing we would want to do is to seed logic, which is just, 
the um the discipline of uh of of studying arguments and seeing uh how you know how the premises of arguments can support their conclusion and how and when they can go wrong uh the you know fallacies are just specific ways that arguments can go wrong uh that's something that uh one anybody who who just wants to try to figure out what's what's true should care about but also uh, in particular, if if we're interested in political persuasion, and if we're not, I don't know why any of us are bothering with any of this. Uh, then that's something that's that's really important to know, and that would be kind of an insane thing to cede to the right. So, so what's interesting to me is uh, YouTube, in particular, has generated this very caricatured version of what debate means. And you talk mm-hmm. about this in in your book, where debate is when. Ben Shapiro has what seems like some witty remark to a 20-year-old he's debating at an event. And it's all captured in 30 seconds. And these videos get a million views because it's like, watch this person dunk on this other person. How is that different? Or or what does that leave out of of what the process of sort of actual debate and discourse should look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So... I think that a lot of this actually, like what it, what it reminds me of is even before the kind of current moment with all of that, I remember, you know, as, as somebody who, who used to, uh, to really enjoy uh, watching uh, Christopher Hitchens videos, there's this whole genre of, they were called hitch slaps, you know, which would basically just be somebody saying something on to him on TV or to, or to talk and him, you know, just having a witty retort, uh, which of course has nothing to do with reasoning. In fact, uh, what the two, uh, what's valorized in that sort of, you know, hitch slap or in a much more degraded version, uh, like videos with titles like Ben Shapiro destroys, you know, whatever, cuck liberal on college campus. (laughs) Uh, You know, like what's valorized by that is the snappy instant response. Uh, whereas if you're actually interested in, in reasoning and in, in making good arguments and thinking about whether some argument should be compelling or not, like everything that goes into, um, you know, any kind of process of argumentation that's aimed at the truth, then what you want should actually in many ways be the opposite of that. What you should want is for people to, uh, to slow down, to, to actually like think about things before they respond to them. I wrote about this controversy where there was a, a mini Australian tour that Roxane Gay and Christina Hoff Summers went on, and it was portrayed as sort of the ideal of like, you know, let's get these two people from different sides and, and have them debate. But it, it made me – I've always been a little bit of a debate bro, not like that yeah. random random people online have any obligation, but just that actually talking to people you disagree with matters. Mm-hmm. But, but the format by which they did this where there was a big audience – it happened to be staunchly pro-gay, but if it had been pro-CHS, it would have been the same result. And just like whenever there was sort of a witty rejoinder, there's just like wild cheering. And it, you could just sort of watch these videos of how it changes the incentives when you have an audience, right? Oh, yeah, no question. Um, and and look, I think that some of that might be unavoidable. Uh, that you know we we can't turn everything into a philosophy seminar all the time. Uh, it it is important to get the rhetorical packaging of of arguments right because you know humans are a narrative species. We respond to that, um, but it's also really important that you you keep your eye on the larger subject or what should be the larger subject, 
which is the is the quality of arguments. And here, actually, I, I would object almost as much in a weird way to what we normally think of as the opposite of the sort of cheap YouTube debate or the um, the kind of you know tour of hot button speakers opposing each other that you were just talking about. Uh, which is like a, this sort of your sort of formal like Oxford style debate. The thing that drives me crazy about that one is when they'll like take a poll of the audience at the beginning and the end to see who changed oh, yeah. their mind, uh, which is insane because anybody who actually has spent a minute reflecting on their own experience of this uh, knows that that's not how it works, right? I mean, like there's the there's the sort of contrary myth, which some people on the left unfortunately subscribe to, which is like nobody ever changes their mind as a result of arguments, which is obviously not true. And in fact, many, I mean, I'm always like really entertained by seeing the people who like, you know, some guy who, uh, you know, grew up in an evangelical Christian household. And then he started watching like Richard Dawkins videos as a teenager and he became an atheist. (laughs) And he was a MSNBC watching mainstream liberal up until the Bernie Sanders campaign. And now he's like halfway to Maoism and he'll say, oh, nobody ever changes their mind, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. You know, so that's obviously ridiculous too. But the idea that it like measures like how good a job he did in a debate, whether anybody has like instantly changed their mind, like the second you stop talking, just doesn't seem to really reflect the, uh, to use a wildly overused term, the uh, lived experience of uh, of anybody who's ever changed their mind about anything, because that's not how it works, right? You you like you encounter arguments for the first time if they really go against you know, views that you care about, uh, your first reaction to them is probably just going to be to be annoyed. But ideally, what happens in the best case, if you're uh, in a frame of mind where you're recept- somewhat receptive, uh, where, you know, where you're at a place where, where you could actually change your mind, is that, you know, you, you encounter arguments that challenge you and then um, – and then, like you, you maybe dismiss them right away because that's what people usually do. But then you find yourself thinking back to them later, and you realize, oh yeah, that guy actually had a point, didn't he? Right. That that so much reminds me of. Um, I won't get into too much detail here or identify anyone, but there's a, a young philosopher who is sort of a lefty philosopher, and one of the things this person says is that on certain subjects, uh, you really can't debate because you're sort of denying people their humanity. And these are subjects where this person is in the minority and someone sort of, I didn't like tweet about it or anything, but they sent me this little DM showing me that, that eight years ago, this person was like a young Republican, like <laughs> up and comer. <laughs> it's just like the cognitive dissonance to, to have such a profound transformation and then say that debate and discourse, like, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I see both sides of it because it's definitely true that people's minds don't change easily, and that if you if you overvalorize debate, you can sort of um, mm-hmm. you know, ignore the nature of of who gets to make the debate rules and who's platformed and stuff like that. That's for sure. No, absolutely, but uh, but it is it is important, like this this mythology that that nobody ever changes their mind, uh, or in that case, this kind of self righteous thing that like oh, everybody should just like already start out getting this, uh, which is particularly, you know, that's particularly an insane thing to think if, like me, uh, you think things that most people don't, right? Like if nobody changes their mind uh, and people don't currently think what that what we think, 
uh, then then we're hosed, right? And you could say that changing material conditions will change their mind, and that happens to some extent. But um, but I don't I don't think that ever just does it all by itself uh, without um, you know without people actually um, giving reasons uh, to think, right? Because like you can you know if there's a I mean, just just to pick like the most kind of obvious and banal example, if you're like if 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 you lose your job, right, you you could, uh, you know, come to left wing conclusions about that or you could decide that it's the fault of the Mexican immigrants, you know, like like a lot change. A lot depends on which interpretations of those things you're exposed to. And I think a lot of the a lot of the nobody changes their mind debate is pointless mythology comes from thinking about it the wrong way that uh, people people often talk about this as like oh why would you debate you know such and such he's not a good faith actor he's not rational it's like well yeah the the purpose of that kind of debate is very rarely to change the mind of the other person on the stage or the person in the other half of the youtube video especially if they do this um, on some kind of professional or quasi-professional basis because you know if, if somebody's you know they don't have to be a bad faith actor for it to be the case that if your whole public identity is bound up with something it's it's going to be particularly hard to change your mind about it but the the purpose uh at least in the moment isn't really to reach that person it's it's to it's to reach observers and really the same is is really mostly true even just with with like debating your um you know like people not that I'd not that I'd recommend spending a lot of time on this, but like arguing with people on social media or whatever that like, you know, generally speaking, especially in the moment, the the other person uh has too much ego bound up in it to to relent then. Uh the the purpose has to be to influence other people who are reading the interaction. Yeah, I mean on those rare occasions when I when I bother arguing with people directly, that's that's sort of what I do. I just want to like if I think their position is sloppy, I'm trying to expose that to others. I don't expect the person themselves to change their minds. Yeah, of course. I mean that like and, and that's also why you shouldn't um go into the, you know, like it's in those sorts of contexts, I think it's generally a bad idea to go too much into the weeds like I you know, I mean I I am not claiming that I never have uh, to put it mildly, uh, in fact, I think this is a place where my, uh, you know, where where my professional training probably really uh, doesn't guide me well, right? Because I always want to like just track down like you know like an objection and just and just like nail it into the ground, like you know like like going back and forth on it and seeing if there's something there. But uh, but of course, if you're if you're talking to observers, you know, it's a rare observer who's going to follow you for all of that. Um, and, and oftentimes they'll miss the original point anyway. And that's kind of why I try to, if I think like somebody like on Twitter says something that's worth engaging with, I try to do a one and done response and like, uh, and not just, you know, go back and forth with people. Uh, for one thing, and a lot of times in that situation, like the real end game of the person that you're arguing with is to exhaust you. So you stop arguing with them, which in the, uh, hellscape of uh, of Twitter is taken as some sort of weird victory, right? Or you block them, which they screenshot as proof that they won. Oh yes, yes, being yeah, that's that is that is probably the um, one of the two worst things about the uh, the culture of political arguments on Twitter that um, that blocking 
like that, that being such an annoying ass that the other person blocks you is seen as a great victory. Uh, the other one, uh, the other one is the, is the taboo against tone policing. Uh, so, you know, you can <laughs> like that, like we've literally like devised a rule against urging other people to be less of an asshole. I know it's crazy. It, it, uh, and, it and it's not, um, consistently enforced either. Like some of the people most, yeah, there's a, a lot of these dynamics are pretty toxic, but it, I mean, it's sort of what you were saying got me thinking before about like, I think there's sort of a flaw in the way people understand how political identities are like constructed. So in the case of a Trump voter, the assumption seems to be that there is this like kernel of, of evil or bigotry in them that existed prior. And then that turned them into a Trump voter. Cause Trump is like the bad and bigoted candidate. But I, the example I always try to use is like liberals and leftists seem to understand that um, in Europe and the middle East, young men can be driven to ISIS who 12 months prior were just living normal lives and horrible stuff happens to them and they're searching for meaning. And this, of course, doesn't morally excuse if they subsequently chop someone's head off. But um, this disconnect where we can understand why like, you know, a kid in the French suburbs might jet off to Syria and try to kill people, but we can't understand why someone in the US might vote for Trump, I, I think is like a pretty dangerous thing in a way i mean am i overstating that no i don't think you're overstating it at all uh i i think that there's there's a lot of that uh going around and obviously it's incredibly misguided on on a strategic level right that uh if you know like because if it's possible that a different pitch would would get some of these people to uh to vote for you then uh, i mean well i'll i'll give just two quick examples uh, from my own uh, experience of, of dealing with these debates. Uh, one of them is the reaction in some quarters when uh, Joe Rogan sort of endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. He did in a very Joe Roganish way. He said he'd probably vote for Bernie. Um, and, and, and there were a lot of people who had the reaction that um, Joe Rogan is bad, uh, you know, because of various things he's said over the years or various like horrible guests that he's not along to. Uh, and therefore by the transitivity of badness, <laughs> him endorsing Bernie and Bernie, you know, tweeting. That was, that was Aristotle, right? Who developed the transitivity of badness. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like, which, which is, which is nuts. And of course, some of that was, uh, you know, bad faith pot stirring by supporters of other candidates. But I, I saw a surprising number of people who I know to be be strong Bernie supporters or, or socialists, even you know, who who were echoing that that reasoning. And and it just, I I really like this seems like such a simple argument to me that um, that if you take somebody like Rogan who uh, has very left-wing views on some subjects that he'll express, um, including immigration, for example, he's, he's made some very good statements about that, has some very right-wing views about other subjects, um, has, he tends to agree with everything right-wing guests say. He also tends to agree with everything left-wing guests say. He's, he, yeah. just seems, he just seems kind of confused, right? Like, which sounds to me like the profile of an awful lot of voters and if you accept the premise that the purpose that like the purpose of an election strategy is to get more people to vote for you than the other guy, then then uh, you're being able to attract people who could be pulled in either direction uh, seems like a good thing. 
And I would also, and I, I had saw a very similar dynamic uh, just recently after the uh, anti-lockdown protests uh, started in my home state, Michigan, uh, which, you know, is, um, I mean, it's hard to remember now because, you know, because the roles have already reversed, but, uh, but uh, back then uh, people uh, thought that, uh, you know, people on the right wing thought that, you know, uh, restrictions on who could go where and do what, you know, were, were fascism. Um, but in any case, like, you know, I wrote an article for Jacobin about this and, you know, and, and, and I said a lot of the obvious things that you'd expect me to say about the astroturf element of the protests and, and, and the thuggish element of the protests and, and the sort of baseline irresponsibility of what was being advocated. But I also said that some of what, uh, was being articulated uh, by people at the protests, including people who are members of really unsavory right-wing organizations, were legitimate economic grievances. And if we don't have a better response to those grievances, then we're going to see more people coming around to this position. Uh, and the the response was like amazing. There, there were um, hundreds of people, well, Granted, 99% of cases, they only read the headline. That was like, it was clear they were just reacting to that. They didn't read the article. Uh, but, but you know, but there were people ranging from uh, Matt Iglesias or uh, Joshua Holland, who writes for The Nation, uh, who who were saying things ranging from, uh, I've been taken in by, by AstroTurf, even though I talked about that in the article, <laughs> uh, to... Like literally, like there are people you know who agree with my politics. They have rose emojis in their Twitter handles who were accusing me of advocating a red brown alliance. Because oh, uh, because I said you know even though the distinction that I was making is exactly the one you were talking about in the context of those uh, European and Middle Eastern uh, young men who join ISIS, uh, which you know if you think back to like the Bush years and and you were you know like me you were a good reader of your Noam Chomsky and, you know, Glenn Greenwald, uh, then you're very, you should be very familiar with this format of argument because it's the, it's essentially the same thing that, you know, that if we can say, um, obviously we don't support Al Qaeda, that's not the issue, not not advocating an alliance with Al Qaeda. Uh, but, uh, we do see that there are, there are like real, grievances that are being used to recruit people for Al-Qaeda. And if you want there to be less of that kind of blowback in the future, then this gives us a reason to oppose certain kinds of U.S. policies in the Middle East. Like if, if you can if you can process all of that without seeing the person saying it as a supporter of Al-Qaeda, then I really don't see what's different about this case. The embrace of that style of argument, which like you, I, I absolutely associate that with like circa 2004 discourse where – you know, at its, I would often listen to sort of far right radio. I went to school in Michigan. I would drive home to Boston and I was just fascinated by like Hannity and Savage. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was solidly liberal at the time, but just uh, that format, it, it amazed me so many people believed it. And, and they would literally say things like if you cared about, um, a human rights massacre, American troops committed, you weren't, uh, you were against the troops. Just this incredibly lazy style of argument, but I, I just sort of see it everywhere. And, um, you know, I, I sort of find myself shying from making like fairly basic arguments, even about police reform and, and mm-hmm. you know, things like, 
the average person um, in a big city in a low income neighborhood, like the the threat the police pose to them is not usually that they're going to get murdered. That's horrible that it happens, but it's just right. everything from the bail system to, to pull broken windows policing. There are all these mm-hmm. other things where like, I understand why deaths get the most attention. You could totally get that, but I think sure. you can't really solve a policy problem without being able to talk about it in a sophisticated way. Yeah. And, and the, and the killings themselves are a particularly grotesque symptom of a larger problem. Yes. Yeah. Um, how do you? I mean, you're 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 a philosophy nerd and a discourse nerd. What do you, what do you do when you see? I don't know. I mean, that that's not fun to get misrepresented by that. Do you just develop a thick skin about it, or what? Uh, yeah, I try to. I'm I'm not always successful, uh, but yeah. I mean, I, I I think that I think that you need to uh, to to some extent because. Uh, if you're if you're going to get super bent out of shape about it, you know, every single time, uh, then then you're not uh, you're just not going to be able to keep doing this. And and even and I've I've even found that like it can be as much as the temptation is always to uh, to get really mad uh, and and to and to perform the fact that you're getting really mad uh, at at the at the people doing the crass misrepresentations, I've found that it can actually be much more satisfying to just sort of calm, like, like very calmly say, well, actually, I, I don't, uh, I don't think that I, I think this, you know, do you, do you agree? Right. right? You know, like, like, like that if you can, you know, if you, if you can do that, even on a, even on a really basic, like, you know, ego level, like that, that could actually like, um, you know, cause, cause it's this, 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 I mean, like, you know, like this is, you know, I mean, this is good. Like maybe this is, maybe this would be useful advice for some people. I actually think, uh, you know, like, like there's this, it is actually incredibly satisfying to be the calmer person, you know, in, in that kind of dialogue. And, um, and, you know, certainly the times when I have like gotten outraged, and and express that outrage that you know that 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 I can't believe you're saying this. This is so stupid. What's wrong with you? Uh, I've I've certainly, you know, it's, it's like you you know, like there's no uh, there's no winning there, right? There's there's no like you know you just you just kind of have an emotional hangover for the experience. Whereas if you can just kind of, um, you know, if you can just sort of calmly point them to the passages in the article. That uh, that you wrote, where where the, you know where you said what they were faulting you for not saying, uh, then if nothing else, right? Like ideally, that's better for persuading them. But even if it's not, like you at least feel better later. Yeah, that I mean that makes me think of my my go to approach. Um, if someone just sort of arrives in my timeline or my mentions mad at me about something, is I'll say, could you point me to to the part of my article you disagree with right. and. Uh, I'd honestly say, I mean, I'm sure someone could actually quote, like search me saying this on Twitter. I've said to so many people now, but 90% of the time they, they're just mad and they can't say what they disagree with. And, um, and now that I think about it, like the subjective feeling walking away from that, I don't feel like stressed out or angry versus if I go back and forth with someone who's really like making morally charged claims that that rarely feels good. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly never. I mean, I don't. Maybe there are people with the stomach for it who who get something out of it that I don't. But it never feels good to me. You want to talk about Jordan Peterson a little bit? I love to talk about Jordan Peterson. 
So so let's do the the slightly more obscure part first, and then I want to talk about sort of the the phenomenon itself. But but I, I think I think you're not the only philosopher who has pointed out that that Peterson's understanding of um, particularly the concept of of postmodernism mm-hmm. is not quite accurate. Is that safe to say? Yeah, most definitely that uh, that he conflates really three different things. Right? He he loves to use these phrases like postmodern Marxism and postmodern neo-Marxism. And he also can, you know, not only conflates these two very different schools of thought, Marxism and postmodernism with each other, uh, but he also conflates them with a third thing, which is like the phenomenon of, you know, so-called SJWs or the kind of captive, you know, campus activism he dislikes, which has relatively little to do with either of them. What what's the false connection he's drawing there? Yeah, so I think that um, well, okay. So so just just to quickly start out with the the part about uh, postmodernism and Marxism. Uh, postmodernism, uh, you know, if if it's about anything, is about um, rejecting certain kinds of overarching narratives about history and society. Uh, that that uh, postmodernists see as too reductive, or you know that like uh, as you know like grand unifying uh, narratives. And of course, not only is the Marxist theory of history exactly such a narrative, but to a very great extent, uh, with the original French pro-structuralists, that was the very one they were rebelling against. Uh, so Peterson uh, would point out in his more lucid moments that uh, that Derrida wrote a book about Marx where he makes some vaguely positive comments. But uh, if you actually read that book, uh, what, what Derrida says is uh, basically that Marxism is kind of over as a political program, but there's something about the critical spirit, blah, blah, blah. It's a very loose you know, connection. Uh, and then when it comes to sort of campus SJWism, you know, maybe you can make a better case there for, for a connection uh, but I think in both cases, right, the sort of Marxism to campus SJW case and even the postmodernism to campus SJW case, that's pretty simplistic. Uh, and so to, to start with the second one, uh, in the, uh, in the, the postmodernism, uh, case, like very often, like especially like if, you know, I mean, this, this is not necessarily, you know, well, I shouldn't say not necessarily what I mean, not at all, right? But uh, this is this is not my my bag philosophically, right? I'm 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 a uh, analytic philosophy nerd, right? But but I do know enough about this to know that uh, that somebody like Foucault is always about sort of finding extra layers of of difference and particularity in ways that don't necessarily fit with uh, with somebody saying like. Uh, here is the struggle of of gay people in general, of women in general. Uh, you know, the, the the interests of this entire group are clearly aligned. You know, with with this goal. I think I think there's some tension there, uh, and um, and in fact, like his own political you know leanings, especially towards the end of his life, really don't necessarily align with that at all. Uh, and with Marxism, it's an even stranger connection because the fi- the thing that I'll find a lot of um, of Jordan Peterson fans saying in defense of this, when you make obvious points about how, how different, uh, you know, Marxism is, uh, you know, from, from postmodernism, much less from the, the campus SJW sort of stuff. Uh, they'll, they'll say, well, 
Um, this is this is like a, a version of Marxism because kind of the same way that Marxists say that workers are oppressed by capitalists, uh, these these people Peterson is talking about think that you know gay people are being oppressed by straight people, women are being oppressed by men, whatever. And and my line out on that has always been that hold on, if that's the standard, right? That like if if what you basically mean when you use the word Marxism is any claim according to which any group of people is being oppressed by anybody else, then Marxism predates the birth of Karl Marx by like all of human history. Right. And Jordan Peterson is himself being oppressed by campus SJWs. Right. Of course. Yes. Um, I guess. So the, the other part of this for me is I think there's two versions of the argument um, mm-hmm. As to why so many people, particularly young men, are are drawn to Peterson, and and we should be clear, he he is in terms of his readership uh, like a worldwide phenomenon, and and I I don't think it's one you could safely restrict just to young white men, right? Mm-mm. I guess so. One version I hear that I'm less sympathetic to is that fundamentally at root, when people are drawn to Peterson, it's because they have some sort of like reactionary dent in their soul and Peterson is telling them what they want to hear about. Cause you know, he said some fairly questionable things about sort of the patriarchy and women and stuff like that. More so in interviews, I'd say than, than at least in 12 rules. But mm-hmm. the other version is more just like, there's a lot of sort of lost people looking for meaning and that maybe an element of this is that popular leftist, ideologies or liberal ideologies aren't really giving people as much to latch onto these days? What are your thoughts on those two views? Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't think that everybody who is attracted to Jordan Peterson, uh, which, you know, I I think is probably predominantly young men in general, right? Um, Not solely by any means, right? But I I think that that's that's who's speaking to the most uh, is, is just like a a hopeless reactionary, I think, is obviously false. Um, I, I think that, for one thing, a lot of people are drawn to him less by the political interventions, even though that is how he originally became famous. Uh, he, you know, like his first book, uh, Maps of Meaning, uh, is like, you know, 900 pages long and full of crazy charts and um amazing chart i would recommend any listener look up just type jordan peterson charts they're incredible <laughs> yeah the, the illustrations in that book are something else uh but i also know that nobody reads it and uh the way i know that is because uh a lot of critical articles have been written by jordan peterson and none of them mention uh his um, his dream about his cousin, which he talks about early in that book, which is the funniest damn thing that I've ever read in my life. Uh, like if if you know if, if you wanted to make fun of Jordan Peterson, there's there's such a wealth uh, in this book that nobody draws from. You know, so well, you got you got to tell us that story now. Okay, uh, so he he says in the book that uh, he used to be some kind of young socialist. It's a little unclear what he means. Uh, this the socialist group he used to be a member of, um, like. He describes it so vaguely, it almost sounds like it could be some revolutionary communist group, but I think it could be that he was just like in the NDP or something. He's being dramatic about it. But regardless, uh, he read he read some George Orwell, you know, which he seems to have really misinterpreted. That led him out of uh, socialist politics, but he was still had this residual concern about nuclear war. 
and uh, in, and he had this year, he said, where he was just constantly having these vivid, haunting dreams about nuclear apocalypse. Um, and he said this is what led him to become interested in psychoanalysis in the first place, that one of the first things he read uh, was Freud's uh, book, Interpretation of Dreams, but he says that uh, that you know that that you know it was interesting and he read it appreciatively, but it didn't really help him because Freud wants to make everything about sex and his his dreams weren't weren't sexual; they're political. Um, so hold that thought. He gives one example in this section of the book. He gives exactly one example of one of these dreams, and that starts out this way. Uh, he's um, in the dream. He's watching TV with his cousin who he parenthetically describes as, by the way, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And, <laughs> and uh, so they're sitting on the couch watching TV. Something goes wrong with the TV. He goes down to the basement to see what the deal is. The bomb goes off. Uh, and then uh, he's wandering around in the street af- after the nuclear bomb has gone off. And there are, uh, there are dogs walking around in their hind legs for some reason um, which I guess when he talks about chaos, right, this is his mental image. And uh, the dogs are trading cooked meat for canned food. And so he, 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 he does this trade and then he realizes at the end of the dream that uh, the, the, the cooked meat he just ate was the cooked meat of his hot cousin. So nothing sexual going on there. No need for any kind of Freudian you know, party. This. This, this reminds me of this very overtly political dream I had where I was having sex with my cousin. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So, but like nobody read that one, right? He became famous uh, really even before 12 Rules came out uh, because of his uh, – crusade you know on youtube mostly uh and in interviews against uh bill c-16 in canada which took the human rights law they already had and added this category of gender identity and peterson thought that um the the effect of this would be to legally force him to use his students preferred pronouns uh i'm not a lawyer much less a canadian lawyer i will say lots of canadian lawyers seem to disagree with his interpretation of the law and it certainly hasn't been used that way yet uh, it's been on the books for a while, but so he became famous for that. And then um, 12 rules uh, for life kind of piggybacked on that, right? That like, that's because he was starting to have a higher profile because of his anti C16 advocacy. Uh, he was asked uh, to, to write a more popular book and it's a self-help book, but even there it's a self-help book, but it has a decent amount of right-wing politics kind of laced into it. Like it, um, not not so much what you're talking about with uh, with the patriarchy, uh, but you know. But there's there's you know his his stuff about postmodern Marxism is in Twelve Rules for Life, stuff about how it's ridiculous to blame economic inequality on capitalism or the West because of like lobster resource inequality is in Twelve Rules for Life. Uh, so so there's a lot of politics there. But I think going back to whether Peterson fans are just all you know irredeemable horrible reactionaries. I think it's important to note that a lot of people come for the self-help and maybe they stay for the politics, right? But that's not necessarily what drew them to him in the first place. And I've certainly had several people over the course of, you know, the couple of years I've, I've been talking about Peterson in public, um, you know, contact me and say things like, I used to be really into Peterson. Um, and sometimes they'll even say things like, and, you know, he really helped me with my, you know, like, like 
watching Jordan Peterson's lectures really helped me in my struggle to overcome my heroin habit or something like that, which is obviously admirable, uh, but who then, you know, became disenchanted with him because of the political stuff. And, and even with the political stuff, uh, even when people are drawn to him by that, it's not necessarily the case uh, that they, you know, that like they have this pre-existing super duper right-wing disposition and, and he's, and like that's why they're drawn to him. So like they never could have gone in any other uh, direction in the first place. I mean, if I believed that, uh, I you know I probably wouldn't bother uh, with the uh, with the Peterson stuff. But but I don't, I don't think I don't think that's true. I think people maybe uh, maybe resent uh, some of the um, like for partially good reasons, right? They might reject reject you know, resent some of the like eccentricities and pathologies of, of a certain kind of uh, left-wing culture. Uh, and, and he seems to be speaking to their resentments about this thing, these things. So they latch on to him. But what I actually thought was really smart in the uh, debate that Peterson did with uh, the Slovenian Marxist intellectual uh, Slavoj Žižek in Toronto uh, last year is that um, Žižek like gave this performance that I think a lot of leftists found unsatisfying because they really wanted him to, you know, do the uh, rhetorical equivalent of, of crushing Peterson's skull. Uh, and, and he just clearly wasn't interested in doing that. But I, I think what he was doing about it, I remember a Canadian journalist named Clifton Mark had a good, um, had a good article about this, um, which I'm sure people, I don't remember the title, but I'm sure people could just find it if they search Clifton Mark Peterson Zizek. Uh, where where his take was that Zizek's primary agenda in that debate was to show these kind of confused young men who are gravitating to Peterson that there is a version of leftism that's not necessarily entangled with all the things that alienate them from it. Yeah, well, and and I think that's to me, I've. I've had both run-ins and frustrations with that same sort of strain of eccentricity, as, as you so diplomatically put it. Um, I mean, to me, that's why I'm 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 a little bit hardened and excited. Even I don't I don't currently listen to Chapo. I used to, but even right. like um, Red Scare and some of the other sort of DIY um, attempts at at fundamentally leftist media that really chart a different course. Like I, I just think there's a real opportunity there to genuinely siphon off kids who might otherwise be drawn to Peterson. Cause you would, you would much rather have them listening to red scare if it was sort of a binary choice. Oh, no question. And by the way, uh, on the subject of red scare, I should say that, you know, and, and I, I listen to red scare sometimes and Anna and Dasha have, have certainly expressed views that I don't always agree with, you know, like they, um, you know, they, they have, hot takes and, you know, and, and they're not. Oh, so, no, same. I sometimes disagree with them a lot, but I still find myself listening yeah. to them in part because it's refreshingly separate from, from mainstream stuff. Abs- oh, absolutely. And I was going to say, like, on the subject of debate, like, I just listened to two things that I think contrast, like, I don't know, a few weeks ago, whatever, time all blurs together in quarantine. Uh, but uh, I recently listened to two things that I thought were, like, really instructively different. One was the monk debate that Steve Bannon did with uh, David Frum uh, in uh, in Toronto, uh, which again is this like super formal, super prestigious kind of Oxford style debate with the polls at the beginning and the end and all that uh, about right wing populism. And then I listened to Bannon's appearance on Red Scare, 
uh, which a lot of people were mad at them for for having him on at all. Uh, there was there was a lot of uh, Twitter fury about that. Uh, that like this just showed what you know Nazi Strasserites they are. That they would they would they would interview such a person. But like the debate that Bannon had with Frum was pretty vapid, right? Like there was they just kind of. Um, you know, like like to a very great extent, especially on Froome's side, he he just kind of like had some elevated rhetoric about how bad Bannon was, and they never even really got into anything that was particularly substantive in terms of like any policy differences that might agree with they might have between them. I suspect that that's because, um, as you know, like I think a lot of Never Trump Republicans like Froome don't really have that many policy disagreements. They just kind of find the the Bannonite mode of expressing conservatism distasteful. Yeah, it's aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, whereas when Bannon went on Red Scare, uh, Anna and Dasha actually did press him really hard on like, hey, you say you're an economic populist. Why don't you support Medicare for all? And he clearly didn't have a good answer to it. And I would say that anybody who might, um, you know, who you're worried that like, you know, might uh, become a Bannon fan, uh, you know, because of his populist rhetoric, I'd definitely send them to the Red Scare episode before I sent them to the uh, Monk debate. I had similar thoughts. I-, I couldn't get all the way through, but but Katie and I are going to do a long thing on Joe Rogan, who who I think he's fascinating for a million reasons, some of which you got into. But I was listening to him talk to Alex Jones. Um, that was one of the one of the main things he's been criticized for is quote unquote platforming Alex, like platforming Alex Jones, who has God knows how many millions of fans, but. Lord, I hate that word platform. <laughs> oh my God. Don't even get me. I mean, you know, yeah. Steve Bannon is going to suffer if he isn't platformed at the New Yorker. I mean, whatever one thinks of that decision, the level of solipsism and narcissism, uh, another subject. Yeah, um, pe- people, people were mad at me for uh, like, you know, debating uh, Stefan Molyneux, who has, I think something like three quarters of a million YouTube subscribers because God knows Molyneuxites are going to find out about him because he talked to me. Right. It's well, again, it's um, from the point of view of your critics here, the only world that matters is like their online social circle, which is invisible to most of the world. Right. Um, but yeah, no, just the experience of, of seeing, I'd only seen clips of Alex Jones and I'm going to talk about this with Katie. There was a part where I thought he really let Jones off the hook and do this horrible conspiracy theory about uh, this would be a good thing for you to know about. Did you know the state of Virginia is selling aborted fetuses to, I think, China for like five figures per dead baby? Did you know that? I sure didn't. Yeah. Well, now you do. Now I'm platforming. Him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but overall, the effect of hearing Jones have someone significantly saner next to him who could ask him follow-up questions and who is clearly skeptical a lot of what he was saying – I just I don't really see that doing net harm. I mean, it's complicated. You don't know who's going to be convinced by what. But um, in the same way, I'd, I'd like to see Steve Bannon seriously challenged by people. I just I don't think people have thought through their anti-platforming ideology. No, not at all. Um, like, I mean, one just the obvious. I you know the obvious fact that uh, in a great many of these cases, uh, the people that you know you are worried about platforming. Uh, already have gigantic platforms, which if if there were any kind of strategic reason to worry about platforming would be a, a decisive response. Um, and and second, that um, that nobody who takes these platforming taboos super seriously 
seems to be concerned about the obvious uh, strategic downside, which is that these guys get a lot of mileage out of the idea that they're like dangerous heretics who people are afraid to engage with. Oh my God, dude, I wrote about this at the peak of the Milo phenomenon where, you know, um, protesters would, would turn oftentimes like right wingers would show up and start shit too, but protesters would turn almost violent just to prevent a Milo Yiannopoulos event from taking place. That would have had maybe 150 kids in the audience. One Breitbart article with video of liberal college students freaking out or leftists freaking out gets easily six-figure page views. I mean, the the cost-benefit is just off the charts for something like that. Yeah, no question. I mean, literally, if uh, students at uh, at Evergreen uh, hadn't bothered Brett Weinstein, the uh, the rest of us would never have to think about him. There's definitely like the the sort of lack of any sort of attendance to unintended consequences. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about that that I think you might have some insights on is there's this tendency – I see this right now, the, the the terms and framings people choose to use to make policy arguments. And the two abo- uh, examples that come to mind are, are abortion and police reform. So setting aside whether you think pol- police actual abolition is a good policy, which I'm very skeptical of, I see a lot of people who say they are in favor of quote-unquote police abolition. And then when you ask them – what policies they propose, they're really, they're like me. They just want to reform it. Um, they're yeah. similar with like some of the, some of the arguments that have caught on about abortion where people say, for example, it's just a medical procedure. There's no moral consideration whatsoever, even for later term abortions. These are like, you have to say, make these statements to be in good standing in some leftist circles. To me, that's a good way of making sure you will never expand your circle. Am I, am I overreacting to that? Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, first of all, I, I, I share, uh, I share all of your skepticism about police reform. Uh, earlier today, I was interviewing, uh, Cedric Johnson, uh, for, for dead pundits, and he has, uh, written a book that's forthcoming about, uh, about police reform issues. And, um, and, and one of the things we were talking about was, well, one, um, yeah, it's all hopelessly vague. Uh, back in 2017, when uh, Democratic Socialists of America adopted what I regard as a bunch of uh, not very well thought out resolutions calling to abolish various things. Uh, one thing that I noticed all the time was a lot of people use this kind of uh, rhetorical cheat code. They would say, um, I don't think that police should exist as we know it. It's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of things should exist as we know that. I don't think I exist how as I should know. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like that's just a way – like, that's just an elaborate, confusing way of saying that you think that the status quo isn't great, right? Like, that's so – it's like, yeah, sure. So do I, right? Like, now let's talk about what we should have instead. Uh, and and especially when, when you talk like the, the most, um, you know, people who – like the the version of of we should abolish the police that uh, comes closest to having any sort of well thought out anything is like oh we should just have like informal like neighborhood patrols or something but then I think well hold on that's how Trayvon Martin died yeah um, so so like this clearly doesn't you know certainly solve all the problems you want to solve uh, I I think that you know I think dramatically scaling back policing that uh, you know there are lots of things that. Uh, police are called in for now that would in a, in a better society be handled by social workers, for example. 
Uh, I think that's certainly true. I think that, you know, we could redirect resources spent on bloated and militarized police departments on, um, on social programs that might address some of the underlying causes of, um, of a lot of crime. Right. And to be clear, I'm not saying that there's any amount of that that would um, that would result in no crime. Uh, there's, I, I'm, I'm quite sure that in an advanced socialist society that had long since abolished poverty, uh, there would still be domestic violence, there would still be rape, and there would still have to be some sort of policing and court system to deal with these things. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean that's and 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 I think it's it's a very uh, there's a kind of self defeating taboo against trying to get people to be less vague about these things that, uh, uh, that, I mean, certainly I've seen, you know, in like even the sort of very mild and occasional comments I've made along these lines lately, I've gotten a lot of pushback, like, Oh, while there's this horrible crisis going on, you know, this is, this is not the time to critique, you know, radical slogans like, okay. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> like, so like while people are paying attention to an, uh, to an issue, we shouldn't like try to like refine our message about it. That seems weird. I call that the, I call that the, the during pride month move. Like you, you said that during pride. It's like, as though if I had said something one day later or one day before this particular month, you would have then accepted the argument. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> like, that's their, uh, yeah, like yeah, they're 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 just certain arguments you shouldn't make, you know, during the entire months of the year. That's that's even better. Uh, but yeah, and in the abortion case too, like in both cases, right? I, I think it's a shame because I think on both of these, I think the the core left position uh, is 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 a good one that that can be blood, you know backed up by extremely plausible arguments uh, that uh, you know like that certainly. Uh, you know, rolling back, you know, militarized policing, redirecting a lot of police resources elsewhere. I mean, I think that the, uh, I, I, I think there's a very good case for that. And on abortion, which, um, you know, which is really, you know, my, my wheelhouse, right. Cause I, I mean, I've, I've spent so many years at this point, um, you know, teaching, uh, ethics classes where, where we'll read, you know, um, the sort of classic philosophy papers about this. Um, like you don't i think i think a lot of people maybe think they have to take this kind of like there's nothing to argue about shut up about it position in order to demonstrate their um their level of commitment uh and that's really a shame right because that means that you just have nothing to say by somebody to somebody who doesn't find that compelling uh which really like if you look at actually well i mean You've obviously read this because I got the link from you. You posted it to Twitter the other day, uh, but I was just reading a old uh, Matt Brunig uh, blog post about uh, deference, right? Oh yeah, the idea that we should defer to uh, to members of groups who are most directly uh, impacted by something for you know for finding out what to think about it, right? We should we should listen uh, to to the oppressed. And one of the things he points out in that is that like on the issue of abortion rights. Uh, there are, there is a, you know, majority support among women, uh, for, for, um, for a pro-choice position, but it's not anything like as overwhelming as you might assume. No. Like it's, there, there are, there is, you know, well over 40%, whatever it was, you know, of, of women who, who identify, uh, as pro-life. And so if you say there's nothing to discuss here, everybody should just get it. 
there's no there are no moral considerations at all that I should have any kind of answer to that might lead somebody to the other position, then you're just permanently foreclosing any chance of of peeling off any of that even forty percent of women. And well, what's particularly frustrating about that is it it ends up caricaturing people in their own morality. Like I've I've seen this in left of center spaces where First of all, they they endlessly overestimate the male female difference on belief in abortion, which is not that big. Like men, I think men are slightly more um, anti choice, but it's not big. And then mm-hmm. you know, so there's millions of conservative women in the country, and, and maybe some liberals like uh, Liz Brunig types who are against most forms of abortion. And then you build this story where it's like a false consciousness thing where, oh, well, the patriarchy got to them. They can't actually hold this belief in some deep moral sense the way we hold our beliefs. Those people over there, their moral beliefs are different. And that that drives me crazy, both because it's a little bit demeaning and condescending, but also if you ever want to convince people of anything, that's the worst way to do it. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, which which really should be obvious, right? Because like, if if you have experienced this move from other directions, uh, like, you know, oh, you know, if you don't believe my deranged right-wing conspiracy theory, then you're just one of the sheeple, right? Like, how compelling did you find that? Right, exactly. like, you know, nobody, you know, like, yeah, I mean, obviously that's that's a good way to get people to, uh, to, to roll their eyes at you. Uh, so, you know, even if you think it's true, right, you shouldn't lead with that. Uh, and... And yeah, and, and it's it's so um, you know, and it's always so selective, right? You know, because like, okay, if there is substantial difference between within a group about what to think about some issue that affects the group, then if you're going to take this kind of identitarian position that like there is a group X position on this, then you're going to have to say that the other. Um, that like the substantial chunk of the group that disagrees is just diluted or something. And, but then like, this goes back to Matt Brunig's point from that old argument that he made about this, that, um, that in order to figure out which group is just being diluted, then you need some kind of independent argument for your position. And at that point you might as well, you know, you might as well just do that. Right. Like there's, so like there's a very recent example of this that, that I've, I've encountered um, from literally a week ago, uh, which is that um, New York City uh, DSA was going to co-sponsor a lecture online, of course, you know, because of COVID, uh, by uh, Adolf Reed, uh, who's a black Marxist academic. Uh, and it was, um, and the event ended up being canceled after they pulled their endorsement. Uh, and, and, and it was being, you know, framed as, uh, oh, Adolf Reed is is a so-called, you know, class reductionist, you know, so it's it's like racially insensitive to hear from him uh during uh this this nationwide unrest that's, you know, to a large extent about racism. Uh but all, all like quite apart from the fact that I think that critique is just wrong, right? You know, like and we yeah. can get into that, but like even if it wasn't like you're like the fact that this organization, you know, and, and I, I used to live in New Jersey. I've, I've, I've met a lot of, I've met a lot of New York DSA people and I don't, I don't think I'm going to shock anybody when I say most of them are white. Um, that like this mostly white organization is making this decision on the grounds that they're like listening to people of color. But like, first of all, nobody took a poll, 
right? right. Like, you know, we don't even know if this is the majority of position of of people of color within DSA, much less the larger world. Uh, and and also, given that the person being canceled in this case is is also a, a person of color, you know, and, and an extremely left wing one, uh, like it's just self-evident from that, that there is a difference of opinion about this, which like, and like really like just explaining that, like seems like once you get to the point where you're actually like explaining why it's a problem to see this as just the people of color position that Reed is wrong. Um, think, well, hold on. Like, do you think there's like a black people hive mind, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that all, all black people have, you know, uh, have have the same opinion about these like incredibly complicated and messy intra left debates. But I think I think I don't think a lot of white liberals and leftists exactly believe that. But I don't think that's that much of a caricature because like you have a very segregated country and you have this this category of a different race of person who has faced stuff you could never imagine in many cases. And I think mm-hmm. people's brains go a little bit haywire. And there's my favorite example. Of this will always be. The New Republic had a really interesting article about DSA drama in the Bay Area. Um, I could be getting the exact chapter wrong. I think it was East Bay DSA. Probably. That's that's very drama prone. Uh, yeah, exactly. One one person or group decided to set up this initiative where DSA would, would uh, check and fix your brake lights for free because that's one reason police contrive to pull people over for no reason and, and harass them. Yeah. Uh, as they're pulling you over, you get a pamphlet or whatever. Here's DSA. Here's why we're fixing your headlights. Just just the most basic activism to introduce yourself to the community. We're here if you want to join us. This Another, the more radical fashion said, well, that would be an example of, of white savior mentality. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> and 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 the idea of the average black Oakland resident yeah. not doing what humans do, which is accept free stuff, yeah. it, it's like it's like the way a right winger thinks of of black people as like these militant white. Oh oh, what are you a white? Like that's when I hear stuff, I just it's like uh, segregation is a real problem in this country. And then within within institutions, I have no doubt that like lots of lots of white people in DSA or whatever have some friends of color, but I think they're mostly from very similar yeah. class and educational backgrounds. Yeah, for sure on that last point. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's like, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a defender of, of those, uh, those break, break light clinics. I actually talk about this in my uh, forthcoming book, um, which is, which is kind of about uh, cancel culture and the way that the, the left undermines itself by not thinking strategically. Well, when's uh, this coming out and what's it called? Uh, I'm not sure when it's coming out uh, because uh, I know when it was originally going to come out, but I, I was also pretty late <laughs> with, uh, with finishing it and, um, and, and COVID is complicated publishing schedules. Uh, so I, I will have to get back to you on the release date. Uh, but it's, uh, it's called uh, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Dude, you need to come back to talk about that when it's out. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so I, I do I do talk about this this and there, and I, I think I think that's like a good thing to do. It's a useful form of street theater that uh, builds some goodwill and and calls attention to to a deadly serious issue in a pretty understated way. I, I think that like you know maybe if if this is like you know if if a DSA chapter is doing stuff like that, but they're not doing like you know. Uh, 
doing things like running people for office, then like, I think maybe you can have a strategic issue with that. But the white savior thing is like the silliest possible reason uh, to, to criticize something like that. I mean, that, that, that's just at that point, like you can just, you know, when you're doing this thing where you say, uh, here's like a reason why somebody who had bad internal motivations could support an idea. Therefore, therefore the idea is bad. You know, you can always play that game in any direction. Yeah. Well, because you raised the dread specter of so-called class reductionism, um, yeah. I was trying to figure out how to how to tie your work into some of the stuff going on uh, now. And, and you had a tweet earlier today that, that did my job for me. So I'm just going to read it to you yep. and then ask you about it. Tying the struggle against police violence to a broader class perspective, while acknowledging the obvious fact that America's apartheid history makes the distribution of poverty wildly unequal, doesn't abandon anti-racism. It's a smarter and more complete anti-racist perspective. I've had trouble – I've been scared to even raise this, despite the fact that I don't really care about people yelling at me on Twitter. Um, the fact is that a subset of the issues with the criminal justice system do come down fairly straightforwardly to class, even something like whether whether you have to resort to a public defender, heroes that some of them are, versus being able to hire private counsel. Those issues are all, of course, correlated with race, but there are many situations where simply having money, regardless of your race, will get you out of situations uh, that would have otherwise ensnared you. What, how how do we talk about this without uh, ruffling feathers? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know that there's a way to talk about it without ruffling any feathers at all, but – You can ruffle three feathers. Okay. Yeah. In terms of trying to keep it to three or fewer feathers, uh, I, I think that – you know, yeah, this is something I've been wrestling with a lot in the last two weeks because uh, I think this is a really important point to make, but there are obviously more and less tone-deaf ways to make it. Um, and and this actually also gets back to the uh, Adolf Reed cancellation, which I just mentioned, because Reed's talk wasn't about the police violence issue. Uh, it was about uh, racial disproportionality in, in COVID deaths, but uh, the point, I think, is the same in both cases. So um that the reason you know like uh what reed was was objecting to is that there's a way that people talk about race racial disproportionality in covid deaths that sort of draws this straight line from racism to disproportionate deaths in a way that's a little fuzzy about the causation and uh and what he thinks is more useful is to focus on kind of the middle link in that chain. So in other words, that America's racial history uh, means for reasons I'm sure nobody who listens to this needs me to rehearse, uh, that uh, black people are vastly more likely to uh, to be impoverished than white people. Uh, that, you know, it, it's, you know, that it's obviously the case. Um, I mean, really, uh, I mean, I'm thinking here back to that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates article a few years ago in The Atlantic about reparations, where one of the things I really admired about it, you know, even if I have a slightly different perspective on, on the ultimate issue that he does, is that, uh, you know, instead of going all the way back to slavery or even Jim Crow, right, he just talked about redlining, right, which is which is yeah. kind of en- enough to to make the case for for how uh, for how racially discriminatory policies. Uh, have have you know contributed to to this uh, this wealth gap? So uh, so given all of that, right? Like because of course um, 
you know, race as no leftist should need to be reminded is silly made up bullshit, right? There's no such, you know, there's no such thing as race. There's skin color, right? And, um, and there are, you know, clusters of common ancestry that can sometimes be relevant to certain kinds of diseases. Uh, but, uh, but this, this idea that there's this like really meaningful natural genetic division of human beings into races is mostly nonsense. So it's, it's not like there's some, you know, genetic reason that, you know, black people are dying from COVID at higher rates than white people. It's, it's because, uh, the main way, if you want to talk about systemic racism, well, the main way that that operates historically, um, is, you know, of course there used to be all of this, you know, uh, de jour, uh, discrimination, uh, you know, extremely recently. Uh, but the effect of all of that, uh, is to have this wildly unequal distribution of poverty. And the bottom line fact is that poor people die of COVID more than, uh, more than middle class and rich people for obvious reasons, right? You know, uh, more likely to be, you know, so-called essential workers, less likely to have adequate medical care, et cetera, et cetera. And so Reed's point is if we're going to like really use this to call attention to this issue to try to do something about the problem that's causing all this, what we should really be front loading is the poverty. And I think, I think a broadly similar point applies to policing, even though there are some wrinkles there that of, of course, part of the reason, especially with police shootings, uh, that for the disproportionality, which is wild, right? I think the uh, Washington post has been um, like for the last few years, they, they've been trying their best to uh, keep uh, updated figures on uh, the, the police killing statistics and, uh, you know, black people are twice as likely, uh, more than twice as likely, I believe, to uh, to be killed by police than, than white people. And part of that is undoubtedly about uh, conscious or unconscious uh, bias, that who is perceived as threatening in a tense situation can obviously um, make a huge difference there. But I don't think that's most of it. I think most of it is the same thing Reed is describing with COVID deaths, that uh, due to this apartheid history of race in America – um, black people are vastly more likely to be in poverty than white people. And in general, everything we're objecting to when we talk about aggressive, militarized policing is tends to be a problem in poor neighborhoods. And, and so uh, I think most of the difference, again, it, it's, it doesn't mean that it doesn't originate in, in and racism, it does, but that's two links back in the chain. The uh, uh, most of the difference is about the unequal racial distribution of poverty. Like if we if we somehow magically eliminated uh, all police bias tomorrow, which obviously I don't think there's a way to do. Right, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about you know having more and better HR trainings or whatever uh, as as a strategy for dealing with this. But even if that did somehow happen. Uh, there would still be a massive racial disproportionality in police killings because there's a va- there's a massive racial disproportionality in in poverty, which is actually I think a really important thing to to recognize for for a couple reasons. Right, it, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring the racial dimension. I mean, there's obviously a huge racial dimension to the problem, but it's important because if you actually want to do something about police violence, if you want to roll back this kind of you know, bloated funding and militarized model of policing, uh, redirect resources elsewhere, uh, then 
as with winning elections, you want to assemble the broadest possible coalition behind you to, to do that. I mean, that that's kind of, uh, you know, strategy 101, right? You're more likely to get your way if you have the uh, the support uh, of, of the biggest possible uh, majority. And uh, right now, a lot of the ways this is framed as an exclusively racial issue uh, sends the worst possible message about this to uh, to white people, including poor white people, which is, hey, don't worry about this, right? This yeah. isn't a problem you're going to have. This only affects other people. What we're asking you to do is to altruistically um, altruistically act on behalf of the other people, which I tend to cynically think is probably a less of a winning message than this is something you should care about because it's in your own interests. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, of course, am sympathetic to that. I also think it's just, um, especially at this historical moment, such an obvious missed opportunity because vast swaths of white America um, – I mean, this is a point – he's obviously not a popular name, but like Charles Murray argument mm-hmm. is like the – the sort of types of what a conservative would call cultural pathology or whatever mm-hmm. that, that have often been associated with low-income black neighborhoods are now spread like things like the opioid epidemic and deindustrialization. You have white towns that are really struggling and where the same problems are emerging. And it's probably in, in a dark, morbid way, it's an opportunity where there are probably more white people than ever who understand what it means to have you know, a, a misdemeanor, turn your life upside down or to have a police throw a flashbang into a suspected drug house and kill a baby. I mean, which is stuff that that happens not as much, but in white America, too. And it seems like a missed opportunity to get people on board. Also, especially given the fact that there's like broad bipartisan consensus on certain types of police reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. Um, and and again, like that, it's certainly true uh, that um that white people are less likely to uh, to read about um, you know to read about the police killing of a white person and think oh that might happen you know to me, um, but that's something that you know like we shouldn't be trying to reinforce that right we should be trying like if we care if we care about rolling back militarized policing uh, we we should be we should be trying to to undermine that issue and 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 see that as you know to to frame it as being as many people's you know as being a problem for a much wider swathe of people because that's going to help get you know get a wider swathe of people on board that like we we want to uh, and and I think if if we I think the more we we talk about it in what it's actually the most accurate way which which is to say that uh that this is uh this goes along with with poverty I mean obviously yeah, I mean Charles Murray is 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 right about um, you know is 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 right about the spread of some of these things. I think he's wrong about the causation. Sure. Uh, you know, like that. I mean, both he's both wrong about the causation in his like bell curve. You know, it's 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 all you know it's all. I, I think I'm more saying like there's a lot of conservatives who understand that that when stuff goes south in a community, this is what happens. Yeah, like not only right, not only the the IQ skull measuring version, but also. Um, but also the the culturalist conservative take on this, I think, is is you know is wrong about the causation because because the um, the cultural effects uh, I think are you know it's more true to say they're downstream from from the economics than uh, than the other way around. Um, you know, I, I think I don't know maybe maybe that goes uh, goes that saying here, but uh, but I do 
But the fact that these are much broader problems is is just is just clearly uh, is just clearly true, right? Like the the way um, I mean, certainly the opioid epidemic has made uh, more white people and even white politicians amenable to reformist arguments about you know policing the war on drugs. But like, basically, for the most part, the war on drugs has been fought the way it's always been fought, and and so of course that means that more um, you know, white people in places like Youngstown, Ohio, are being caught up in those tactics. Right. So I'm mindful of your time, and and I've held you a while. I want to do one last thing, which is uh, sort of a spin off. Um, the conservative comedian and provocateur Stephen Crowder will yeah. set up shop on a campus quad. Yep, exactly. He'll say something like he'll put a little sign up that says "There are only two sexes." Change my mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do that that particular question, but um, so I'm just, I'm just going to talk at you for a minute, sure. and then Go just give it. me your sort of elevator pitch for why I'm wrong. And I'm not going to get into the weak. This is about socialism, being a socialist versus being a right. weak, need, wobbly, wussy liberal, which is more what I am. Um, and and you've thought much more about why you're a socialist than I've thought about mm-hmm. why I'm a, a wussy liberal. So you would you'd beat me in an actual debate, but I just want to get your your best shot on sure. this. So. <clears throat> I'm sort of I'm sort of improvising this, but basically my stance is I want the U.S. to be a lot more like Germany or Finland or Denmark. I want a stronger social welfare state. I want more redistribution. I think income inequality is out of control. I do not mind legislatively taking billions of dollars from people of tens of billions of dollars and on and on. Whatever caveats you want, I understand there's political problems. Blah blah blah. I feel like I can hold all these views and also not be a socialist because I don't consider Finland or Denmark or Germany to be socialist countries. And I'm sufficiently risk averse about the idea of like some sort of all out revolution that I just, I don't have the confidence to say that things would end up better than they started. And I actually think in terms of, uh, to maybe inhabit Steven Pinker a little, like the getting us from, the world in 1900 to where like Finland or Denmark are today represents a massive decrease in human suffering and an increase in human potential. And I think I'm just nervous about shooting for anything more than that, given how complicated humans are. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, not all of that is wrong. Uh, I mean, I I think that uh, certainly uh, having, having a Scandinavian, um, style style welfare state uh, is is an important goal uh, that this is this is something we should be you know we should we should be striving for I don't I don't think we should you know dismiss this uh, because it's it's just uh, it's just reformism uh, this is something you know I think this this would be these would be huge advances and and I tend to think that those Nordic social democracies which I agree are not socialist, are probably the most livable societies that that humans have invented so far. So why don't I want to stop there, right? Why why do I think that um, why do I think that we should be we should have long term horizons that go beyond even that? Uh, basically, two reasons: uh, one uh, more practical or strategic, and one uh, more ideological. Uh, to to start with the ideological reason. Uh, I do think that uh, the uh, the structure of ordinary capitalist workplaces is is also a problem, even if even if it's not attached to uh, you know to things like poverty wages. 
uh, that uh, we, we have a system where some people uh, have the resources uh, to, uh, to start businesses uh, of their own. Uh, and, and most people, due to factors completely outside of their control, uh, have to go to work for people in the first category that so which uh, and you know there are a certain number of lifeboats out of that situation you know class mobility exists although of course everybody can't be mobile because then we'd all starve to death because nobody would be picking the crops uh, you know and so there are a certain number of lifeboats out but only a certain number uh, not everybody can even you know be um, you know pampered academics and journalists like us uh, so, uh, so most people have to go to work for business hours, which means that for eight out of every 16 hours of the day, they have to submit to a level of control, uh, that is in, in many ways similar to, or greater than the level of control that an authoritarian or even totalitarian government exercises, uh, over, over its citizens. And of course, sure. If there is a sufficiently, um, you know, good labor market, uh, you might be able to switch jobs, but the basic deal is going to be the same uh, at, at any at any job, right? You know, you're going to have this, you know, hierarchical subordination to somebody who has no democratic accountability to you, and I think that's bad in itself. That's the ideological reason. Uh, but if if that were the only reason, I could definitely see more of a case for what you're saying because. Um, you know, there might be a lot of things that would be better uh, than, than what we have now. But, you know, as, as Mick Jagger so wisely reminds us, you can't always get what you want. Um, but I think that there's also a more uh, pragmatic or strategic reason, uh, which is that there is an innate um, instability uh, to, uh, to reforms uh, within, uh, within capitalism. And, uh, and you know, when I talk about socialism, I, I I don't necessarily mean what the you know the kids on Twitter might call full communism, right? You know, I, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I, I have a anybody can uh, can look it up. I have an article in, in Jacobin from a couple weeks ago called something like "Capitalism Isn't Working," but what would a what would a viable socialism look like that, that tries to get into some of the details? Uh, but I think that uh, that if you don't switch to some sort of system where you eliminate this fundamental class division that exists even in Finland and Denmark, uh, then the sort of gains that you uh, that you carry forward under capitalism are always going to have a certain instability on this. So, a book that I'd really recommend for anybody interested in seeing this argument develop more fully is Bhaskar Sunkara's book uh, "Socialist Manifesto." Uh, and, and this is, this is one of the big, big themes of the book that there's the sort of, you sort of roll the boulder of social democratic reforms up the hill. Uh, and then as long as, as you have a, an economic ruling class still in the economic saddle, uh, and this is not original Bhaskar, I think he's getting it from Rosa Luxemburg, uh, then, uh, when, you know, as soon as they get a chance, right, you know, they're going to try to, uh, to roll it uh, back down the hill, and, and we've seen this uh, play out in in various ways uh, in various countries, and, and how successful those efforts to roll it down the hill are. There's obviously crazy levels of variations between the countries. I don't I don't want to vary too much, you know, to generalize too much, but you know, look at everything that was accomplished by by Clement Attlee, and everything that was how much that was undone first under Thatcher, and then even under New Labour, um, you know, or even look at some of the um, 
what what are called reforms, right? You know, but I would think of as uh, as the opposite of that that have happened even in a country like like Sweden. Uh, and and I think at a certain point, if you're like really pushing social democracy to, to its limits, uh, you're trying to do everything that can be accomplished within that framework. Uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to get this um, this rolling of the boulder back back down the hill uh, from from those with economic power. And I'm very skeptical that there's any way that no matter how much you know campaign finance reform, et cetera, et cetera, that you get. I tend to think that as long as you have concentrations of economic power, uh, those are always going to find ways to translate themselves into concentrations of political power. And, and at a certain point, I think the only way to neutralize that is to just kind of take some pieces off the board uh, by uh, democratizing uh, the economy itself. I guess all I can say, Ben, is you make a strong case, comrade. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> no, I've really I've enjoyed reading your work, in, largely because I'm, you know, as I said, a little bit skeptical. Uh, but you you write in a really clear way, and I think you also, for socialists and non-socialists alike, you make a strong case about the importance of um, you know communicating and talking clearly and being open to conversations. So I'm very glad I had you on the podcast, and uh, I'm really excited about the new book too. So let's definitely have you back when that comes out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, man.